You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Starting verse 11. In the second year after Israel's departure from Egypt, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted from the tabernacle of the covenant. So the Israelites set out from the wilderness of Sinai and traveled on from place to place until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. So a a little short summary in those two verses of kind of how things went. We need to remember here again, as I said at the beginning, this is an exciting time for the nation of Israel. Okay, they had previously only known the slavery of Egypt. And then imagine going through the amazing events of the Exodus, those 12 or the, the, the 10 plagues that were brought against them there in Egypt and just seeing the hand of God work in an amazing way and delivering them from slavery. And since then, they, you know, they kind of traveled out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, saw God's miracle there. And then, you know, just miraculous event after miraculous event until they reached Sinai. And they've been hearing God talk about the promised land, this place that he's going to be bringing them into. And now for the first time, they're setting out, they're moving out towards all of these promises. It's a very exciting time for them. They're coming out of Egypt and slavery, and they're being brought into Canaan and freedom, the land that's flowing with milk and honey. That's the direction that the Lord wants to take all of us in tonight. The Lord has good things planned for you and for me. And the Lord has a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I'm speaking in analogy here. But spiritually, the Lord has great blessings in store for us. And for his children. And he's bringing us out from the slavery of the world. And he wants to bring us in to the freedom of the spirit-filled life. You know the Apostle Paul, he talked about this, didn't he, in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, we see a very troubled Apostle Paul. An Apostle Paul that was really struggling with... Codiciar, uh, what is... Um, Looking at my wife, what am I thinking here? Coveting, coveting. He's thinking of, he was struggling with coveting. That's codiciar in Spanish, just so you know. And I don't know why I'm now, just now, like having trouble with Spanish and English. It's been a year. It's weird, but he was coveting. And so Paul was struggling. He's like, I see the, the spirit inside me that's leading me to do what's right. But it's coming straight into contact with this law of the flesh that's saying, no, you know, you want that. You want whatever your neighbor has. And I don't know specifically what it was. I've, I've got a feeling for what it was, but I don't know for sure. But he struggled with that in Romans chapter 7. And it's that famous their, their struggle internally that we all face. But then what does he say at the end of that chapter? And I thank God for it. He says, you know, wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of death? And then he says the, the, the phrase there that points us all in the right direction. I thank God for Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we're delivered from the body of death. And then he goes right into Romans chapter 8, which is the spirit-filled life. It's the spirit-filled life. And that is the victory for all of us from the slavery to our flesh. The slavery to our self-life, this, this, you know, this life that, where we fulfill the passions of our flesh and we do whatever we want, and, and that freedom comes 
through being filled with the Holy Spirit and connected and abiding in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ and the Spirit, they accomplish what we could never do in our own flesh. And, and some of us know that struggle. We know, we know we can't be victorious. Some of you are still on the other side of that going, no, I think I can. <laughs> you know, if I check off the boxes and, and do everything right, I think I can, Phil. I think you're wrong. It's, I had a guy in my office uh, uh, about, a, you know, about a year ago. Came in and, and, and sat down with me and said, you know what, Pastor Phil, I think, I think you, you talk about how you struggle with sin too much. You know, and I was like, well, I don't think I focus on that too much. I mean, it's just a reality of my life. And he said, well, it's not a reality in my life. And I was like, wow, you know, I didn't really, should I take my shoes off? Am I in the presence of holy ground here? You know, looking at this guy, looking to see if he's levitating off the couch or something. But no, he was a normal guy. And once we started talking about sin and you know, how it really manifests itself, then he started to realize that he was a sinner too. And he struggled with sin as well. But, you know, we could struggle with it and struggle with it and think that we're doing good and think if we just put forth the effort, we'll get over it. But you know what? It never happens that way. God wants to take us out of that struggle and he wants us to, he wants us to rest in him. He's taking us to the promised land. Now, the promised land... Is the spirit-filled life for the believer in the New Testament era. Okay? It's the land where God's grace and mercy are new every morning. That's the milk and the honey. <laughs> it's his grace and mercy. The sweetness of his fellowship, the sweetness of his presence. That's where the Lord's leading us. This is the direction he's taking all of us in. Notice with me the change, though, that has come over all of these Israelites as they've been with the Lord at Mount Sinai. We know that at Mount Sinai, they were ordered and organized. They were cleansed. They were purified. They were set apart and blessed. They were taught how to give and how to function as God's priests in the world. They were given God's presence. And they were given the tools that they needed to worship and to walk with God. Now we might think that after all of this equipping and preparation that the actual entering into the promised land would be easy, right? Oh, yeah, they got it all, they got it all set and now it's just a matter of going there. But it wasn't, was it? The preparation was exactly that. It was preparation for the battles and the struggles that lay ahead. The promised land is not sitting back on your laurels. The promised land is an active rest, if I might put it in that way. Yes, God is leading you to a land of rest, flowing with milk and honey, mercy and grace. But it is not a land where you sit back and get comfortable and grow fat off of the blessings of the Lord. But rather, it's a, it's a land where you have to step out in faith and appropriate new territory. Where you have to grow and mature in your faith by knowing the promises of God and standing upon them and appropriating things through a personal relationship with Christ that you've never done before. You know, when a person joins the Marine Corps, he or she first starts with boot camp. And boot camp is difficult. Emotionally, very, very difficult. Physically, it's, you know, it's difficult, but not the most difficult thing you'll probably ever face. 
But emotionally and mentally, it's at another level. Upon graduation, those Marines might think that they've accomplished something. And they really have. Boot camp is rough. But they've really only been prepared for something that's much tougher. And that's the actual war. Actual war puts a mental and emotional stress on a man or a woman far above and beyond boot camp. They've been somewhat prepared for it, but until they experience it, they're not there yet. When the Israelites set out on this journey, they've been prepared to enter the promised land. But you know what? They would find that it didn't come easily. They would find that it was a daily struggle. That it was a daily battle of waking up every morning and asking God to be with you as they took up their swords and put on their battle uh, gear and set out to the hills and the mountains to find those tribes of Canaan where they had to do battle. They needed to remember that they had been prepared, but they also needed to remember that the Lord was with them every day. We need to remember that too. You know, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And it tells us that we're to take up the full armor of God and to put that on, on a daily basis. How many of you today woke up and put on the armor of God? You know, if we were a Roman soldier facing uh, the hordes of barbari- the, the barbarians that crossed the Rhine over in Europe, and we woke up in the morning and decided, you know what, forget the armor. You know, forget the breastplate, forget the helmet, forget the sword. I'm just going to go out there with my fists and my undies on, you know, and just kind of take them on. You know, what kind of an idiot would we be? And yet, yet there are so many Christians that fail to get up in the morning and to spend some time putting their armor on by spending time with Jesus. Romans chapter 12 says that we put on Jesus Christ like the armor of light. Jesus Christ is the armor of light. And we do that by spending time with Him in His presence. Are you putting on your armor? The Israelites had to do that every day. They had to realize, hey, we depend on the Lord for victory. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I'd like to read this with you tonight. It's a really good passage So you're going to keep going after Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and then you should hit Titus and then Hebrews. If you get to James, you've gone too far. First or Second Peter, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter ten, verse nineteen. Let's read it. It says, "And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter." heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. I love those verses. I love those verses because they remind me 
that I'm on a pilgrimage, and on that pilgrimage sometimes I get a guilty conscience because of the shame that comes from sin. And I feel unworthy, I feel condemned. And I feel that, you know what, I'm not appropriating the promised land the way that God wants me to. I'm failing. But you know what, the Lord is taking us through all of that. He's gone ahead of us. And He has won our passage into the promised land. He's the one who gives us the ability to rest because He went ahead of us and He did it for us. He's opened up that new and life-giving way. And the Scriptures tell us now because He did that, because He did all that for us, now we just come in. We just come right into the presence of God with a sincere heart and we just trust Jesus. We trust that the Lord has paid the price for our sin, that He has shed His blood to win our position in the holy presence of God. And so we can find mercy and grace in our time of need. Jesus has cleansed us. He's purified us just as the Israelites were cleansed and purified at Mount Sinai. We move on in verse 14 as we... um, Look at the formation that Israel took while they traveled. It says, Judah's troops led the way. I'm sorry, verse 13. Then the, when the people set out for the first time, following the instructions the Lord had given through Moses, Judah's troops led the way. They marched behind their banner, and their leader was Neshon, son of Aminadab. They were joined by the troops of the tribe of Issachar, led by Nethanel, son of Zuar, And the troops of the tribe of Zebulun, led by Eliab, son of Helon. I'm going to probably butcher these names, but just bear with me. Verse 17, then the tabernacle was taken down, and the Gershonite and Merorite divisions of the Levites were next in the line of march, carrying the tabernacle with them. So after that first three tribes came the Gershonites and the Merorites, and the reason for this was so that they could get into camp first with that first group of three tribes and set up the tabernacle before the last clan of the Levites would arrive carrying all of the holy articles, the sacred objects. So by the time they would get into camp, the tabernacle would already be set up and they could just walk in and set those things up where they needed to go without having to leave them out in exposure. So it was a a wise plan that they'd come up with. Verse 18, Reuben's troops went next. Marching behind their banner, their leader was Eliezer, son of Shedur. They were joined by the troops of the tribe of Simeon, led by Shilumiel, son of Zerushedai. <laughs> and the troops of the tribe of Gad, led by Eliasaph, son of Deuel. Next came the Kohathite division of the Levites, carrying the sacred objects from the tabernacle. Before they arrived at the next camp, the tabernacle would already be set up at its new location. Ephraim's troops went next, marching behind their banner. Their leader was Elishama, son of Amihud. They were joined by the troops of the tribe of Manasseh, led by Gamaliel, son of Pedazur, and the troops of the tribe of Benjamin, led by Abidan, son of Gideonai. Verse 25, Dan's troops went last, marching behind their banner and serving as the rear guard for all the tribal camps. Their leader was Ahiezar, son of Amishadai. They were joined by the troops of the tribe of Asher, led by Pagiel, son of Okran, 
and the troops of the tribe of Naphtali, led by Ahira, son of Enon. This was the order in which the Israelites marched division by division. So they marched there with the presence of God going first. Remember that, the cloud or the pillar of cloud and then fire by night. That went first. And then when it it rose up, it covered over the Israelites and gave them shade while they walked in the desert. So that was pretty cool. But then after that was the tribe of Judah in front. And as you know, their, their standard or their flag bore the image of a lion on it. Now, I want to point out that sometimes this pillar of cloud that would raise up from the tabernacle and indicate that they were to move out, then it would lead them to their next camp. Sometimes it led them to move on. Sometimes it stayed. Sometimes they camped in difficult places. Sometimes they camped in beautiful, comfortable places. But always, the point here is that when the pillar of God's presence moved, they knew it was time to move on. It's a great picture of how God wants to care for not only Israel in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we find that his desire is the same. He wants to lead the believer in Jesus Christ. I believe that God wants to lead you individually. I believe that he wants to lead our church collectively. I believe that God has a plan for Calvary Chapel Paris in this town. And I believe that we're all a part of that. I personally believe that vision for direction for this church can come from anyone that is a member here, anybody that's a part of this church. Now, we don't have a formal membership here, I and mean, we don't have a roll call, and you know, we don't post your name if you tithe this week, and we don't call you if you didn't, okay? We don't have that kind of stuff going on here. But we do believe that if you're a member here, and by that I say you believe this is where God has you to be, that you're called to be here, that I believe you're a member here. I believe you're a member of this flock, and I believe that I'm called to be your pastor. But I believe that collectively as a group, God has a plan for us. He wants to lead us. He wants to guide us. I'm still relatively new here, and I'm still waiting to see what God is going to cause this church to be thrown into. You know what I mean? What, what, What is the vision that he wants to throw us into wholeheartedly as a group, as a body, as a family? And I believe that God can lead through uh, individuals. But that's what he wants to do. He wants to lead us just as he led Israel collectively. There with the pillar of fire and the cloud. That represents for us in the New Testament the Holy Spirit. But Jesus was from the, the, the tribe of Judah. His lineage, his genealogy. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is actually called the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Revelation 5.5. 5. All of God's people will find themselves in this same order of following behind the lion of the tribe of Judah. At some point, he needs to be leading you. And you need to be following him. His calling on your life is the sign that he is leading you. And your obedience to that call needs to be uh, simple-minded. It needs to be immediate. It needs to be complete. As he calls, that call is his enablement for you to follow him. Now, sometimes he leads us for a season in green pastures, doesn't he? Sometimes he leads us beside quiet waters. And things are good. 
and life is good. And we relish those times, don't we? But there are other times in our lives when He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. There are times when Jesus leads us to those high places where we worship and we rejoice and we sense His presence. But there are also times where the Lord takes us into the desert. Remember Jesus Christ's life itself in Luke chapter 4 says that the Holy Spirit drove Him into the desert. You might be in a desert tonight. You might not be sensing the presence of the Lord in your life. Well, you know what? It's okay. Jesus leads us into the desert sometimes to teach us things, to grow our faith, to cause there to be roots sinking down deep into the Word of God. Because we're called to walk by faith and not by sight, not by emotion, not by feeling. So know that you might be in that desert place tonight, but the Lord has led you there and the Lord will lead you out of it. The Lord never ceases to, to lead lead us onward now yes it's true there are times when we can stray yes it's true that sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of a circumstance because of our own doing but you know what the lord is a great shepherd and he has a rod and a staff and he knows how to come and to lay down that discipline when we need it and he knows how to put us over his shoulders and bring us back to where we need to be until we heal I praise God for that as well. In all things, what is important is that we're hearing His voice and that we're being led by Him. You see, we shouldn't allow the uncomfortable circumstances of life to be our sole motivation for moving on. And we shouldn't, at the same time, the opposite is just as true. We shouldn't allow the comfortable circumstances of our lives to be the motivation for remaining in a place. You see, In all of our lives, we need to focus on being led by the presence of the Lord. He wants to lead us. His Holy Spirit will fill us, and He will speak to us and show us the way if we seek Him. We reach now, here towards the end of the chapter, a very interesting little aside in the story. And it it has to do with this guy named Hobab, who's the brother-in-law of Moses. Yes, his name is Hobab. In verse 29, we read, One day Moses said to his brother-in-law, Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, We are on our way to the place the Lord promised us, for he said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised wonderful blessings for Israel. Verse 30, But Hobab replied, No, I will not go. I must return to my own land and family. Verse 31, Please don't leave us, Moses pleaded. You know the places in the wilderness where we should camp. Come, be our guide. If you do, we'll share with you all the blessings the Lord gives us. I love this little interesting side story. We actually find here a great outline for how we can speak to and invite others that God puts into our life to come with us as we follow Christ. Hobab was Zipporah's brother, whom Moses had married while he lived in the desert of Midian for 40 years. He was a Midianite, and it seems that he was unfamiliar with the God of Israel. He was unfamiliar with his ways. But Moses here sets a good example for all of us, doesn't he? He comes to him, and he reaches out to this guy. He reaches out to Hobab, and 
you know, who happens to be in his circle of influence. And, and really, I want to point that out tonight. That's where you and I need to be looking for those whom God wants us to go to and invite to come with us. Someone in your circle of influence, maybe a family member, maybe it's a co-worker, maybe it's a friend, but someone that's in your circle. You know, Jesus did this, didn't he? In fact, Jesus was all about reaching out to different people. Sometimes they were in his circle of influence. Sometimes they were out of his circle of influence. I think of the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says that he went through Samaria because he needed to go through Samaria. But it wasn't on his way. He had to go out of his way to go through Samaria to have a conversation with a woman at the well so that she could follow him. But he did it with Zacchaeus, didn't he? He walked into town, spotted him in the tree and said, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down with me. I'm coming to your house today to to eat dinner. (laughs) He was in the business of inviting others to follow him. That's how he got the disciples to follow him. He said, come to me. And they, they did. They came. They came by faith. They took that step of obedience. When we speak with these people that God puts in our lives, we can start off by telling them like Moses does, We can tell them that we're on our way to a good place. I like that. Moses says, hey, listen, we're on our way to a promised land that God is going to give to us. It's a great place. We are going to heaven, and heaven is going to be amazing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10 tells us it is a place that has an eternal foundation. It's a place that was designed and built by God. You're looking at an earth, a globe, that was built and designed by God. Imagine what heaven is going to be like. The most amazing thing about heaven itself is the throne of God. And God Himself upon that throne. His presence alone is going to be wonderful. There will, we're going to have fullness of joy, disease, suffering, pain, sickness, and death. It's going to be no more. Our peace will be complete. All of that is promised to us in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. But this is the home that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to, that he was going to go to prepare for them and come back and receive them to himself and take them there. So this is exciting. We can tell these people, listen, hey, I, I want to take you with me to heaven and you know maybe you've got that person already in your mind you know man phil i've already talked to them 50 times (laughs) you know i've brought the you know i've invited them to church on easter and christmas for 10 years now and they're still not coming don't give up Don't give up. Have the mindset of Moses that says, you know what? Hey, we're going to a good place and we want you to come. I really want you to be there. (laughs) I really want you to be there. C.S. Lewis said, if heaven and hell are true, nothing else matters. And then he said, if heaven and hell aren't true, then nothing matters at all. Let me read that again. If heaven and hell are true, nothing else matters. If heaven and hell are not true, then nothing matters at all. Secondly, Moses tells him that that he'll be treated well, and we can do the same. 
Moses made sure to let Hobab know he was welcome and that they would treat him well if he came with them. You know, we can do the same to those folks that are new to our church. We can do the same to the people that we're trying to invite with us to the kingdom of heaven. We can come alongside them and say, listen, hey, you can, you're going to experience the love of God when you come to Calvary Chapel, Paris. Aren't we supposed to reflect the love of God? Think about this. Think about how you treat somebody here that you don't know. What do you do when you see somebody here and they look a little nervous, maybe have a look of confusion on their face, and they're trying to find the computers, you know, the children's ministry, which is all the way in the very back of our facility. To you, that might just be commonplace knowledge. You do it every day. You come here. But think about somebody that's here for the first time. Man, we should be reaching out to those folks. Finding out, hey, what are you doing after church on Sunday? Hey, my my family and I happen to be going out to eat, or we're going to be barbecuing some burgers. Would you come over and eat with us? How do we treat the people that we're looking to invite into the kingdom of heaven? We all need to think about that because we are all either part of the problem or part of the solution. You know, as a young man... Uh, leaving my home at 18 and going to Southern California for the Marine Corps was a scary time in my life. And uh, I didn't have any friends outside of the Marine Corps, but on the weekends, you know, we got to go off base. And one of the first things I did was buy a car so I could drive myself around and do what I wanted to do on my time off. And one of the things that I would do without fail every Sunday was go to church because I knew I needed the Lord in my life. I wasn't necessarily walking strong with the Lord at that time, but I went to church every Sunday because I knew I needed to be there. I knew I needed the Lord. But you know what? I got the experience of going to numerous churches in my, uh, you know, my, my early you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, I think I was... 19 when I finally got plugged into a church it took a year and a half maybe a little bit more and you know I'll tell you what I remember going into those places and there's a reason I stuck at Calvary Chapel of Vista in Southern California it was the first place that I went to where I sat down next to a guy and right after the service was over he looked at me and he said hey a bunch of us are going to eat at Coco's you want to come with us and I was like, well, yeah, sure, you know, why not? <laughs> it was the first time anybody had ever invited me to go do something outside of the service. And I was amazed. And, you know, I got plugged into that group, and it was an incredible group that showed the love of the Lord to so many people. It was an awesome time in my life. But to just be treated in such a way that was so loving, man, it blessed me. And, it, it, you know, in large part, I mean, that's, that's why I'm here doing what I'm doing today. You know, it's because of that. Think about that, guys. The way that we treat others, it's huge. We've got we to move on. But really quickly, I want to read John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus gave us this command. He said, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know, it's when we show others the love of Christ that they feel compelled to come along with us. Hey, maybe there is something to these, these guys. You know, I don't know too much about church, but I see that they love the Lord. They love each other. I think I'm feeling compelled to go along with them. That's something that Moses 
told Hobab, hey, you'll be treated well. Thirdly, uh, Moses gives us an example that we can tell them about the blessings of the Lord. We could tell them about how good God has been to us. You know, if you don't know how good God has been to you personally, then I challenge you to go home and to read Ephesians 1 and 2. Read those two chapters and look at how much you have been blessed by God if you're a believer. Read Psalm 103, an exhortation to forget none of the benefits of the Lord. So read those chapters if you're sitting here going, eh, I don't really know if the Lord's blessed my life. Ephesians 1 and 2, Psalm 103, they'll give you many reasons. He chose us in Christ to be His own special people. He adopted us into His family. Forgave us all our sins. He erased our guilt and shame. He made us friends with God. Gave us a guarantee or a down payment on eternal life. The Holy Spirit, right? He crowns us with love and tender mercies every day. He fills our lives with good things. He shows us unfailing love like you've never known before. How many times does He forgive you? (laughs) Forever. Countless unconditional love guys we need to talk about these blessings with those that we're inviting to come with us but look at what else is involved in this invitation it's also a recognition of how much hobab can bring to enhance their journey because of what he has to offer look at look at verse um verse 31 Moses pleaded with them, it says. He says, you know the places in the wilderness where we should camp. Come and be our guides. If you do, we'll share with you all the blessings the Lord gives us. Hey, are we prepared to come to somebody and say, listen, we need you, man. Or, or you are so gifted and so blessed. We need you in this church. We need you in our family. I love, I love how Moses was humble enough to do that, you know. A lot of Christians who go, nah, Lord doesn't need him. Lord doesn't need anybody, you know. But Moses is like, no, hey, we need you, man. You know the watering holes. You know the path. You've got knowledge that we don't have. And so this humble heart to come alongside and say, hey, share your knowledge. Share your talents. Share your gifts. We need them here. And let me just assure you, we need your gifts here He adds a promise of a share of God's blessings, doesn't he, if he'll accept. Come with us. We're not told if Hobab went with them or not. But at least we have this cool little example of how we can talk to other people that we want to invite along with us. Let's close it out tonight. Verses 33 to 36. We read, They marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord, with the ark of the Lord's covenant moving ahead of them, to show them where to stop and rest. As they moved on each day, the cloud of the Lord hovered over them. And whenever the ark set out, Moses would shout, Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let them flee before you. And when the ark was set down, he would say, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. I love how this chapter ends. It ends with a great prayer for every believer to be praying today. You know, we know that the Lord has things and places that He wants to lead us into. How we need Him to go before us every day. 
We need the enemies of the Lord to be scattered in our lives. I ask you today, are you desperate for that? Are you desperate for the Lord to go before you and to scatter your enemies and the enemies of the Lord? What about at the close of the day? Man, sometimes at the close of the day, our minds just turn into little bowls of soup, don't they? And we just like to come home and plop down, you know, and maybe veg out with some entertainment. But imagine if we were to pray like Moses did, Lord, return to your people at the end of the day. And, and we were to filter what we did, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, having some entertainment in your life, but, but to filter that through the Holy Spirit and, and everything that you do there in the evening time with the presence of the Lord with you. I, I think it's a great thing. What if we were to make this a sort of a daily prayer in our lives? I think it would be powerful. We'll close tonight with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He had this to say about this particular prayer. He says, Will you and I go home and pray this prayer by ourselves, fervently laying hold upon the horns of God's altar? I charge you, my brethren, in Christ, do not neglect this private duty. Go, each of you, to your chambers. Shut your doors. Shut to your doors. Cry to Him who hears in secret, and let this be the burden of your cry. Rise up, Lord. Let thine enemies be scattered. I love that quote. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do just come to you in prayer tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would rise up and go before us. Scatter your enemies, Lord. And Lord, at night as we come home, Lord, tonight from a, a, just a time of worship, Lord, we, we ask that your presence would return, Lord, and that you would just give us rest. That you would rest upon us. Lord, we pray, Lord Jesus, that, Lord, we would travel through the pilgrimage of life knowing that you desire to lead us, and Lord, that we would obediently follow you. And Father, when we get off because of our own flesh or the world or the enemy, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would remember that you, Jesus, have paved the way for us to come boldly into your presence and receive grace and mercy, forgiveness from sin each and every time we fall. We love you so much, Lord. And Lord, if there's anybody out there like Hobab tonight that's listening, we pray that you would convince them, Lord, through our words, Lord, to come with us. Lord, how desperately we want our loved ones and friends to be saved. And Lord, when we meet somebody, Lord, help us to be humble enough to say, hey, man, we could really be blessed to have you be a part of our family, part of the family of God. Would you come with us? Lord, I pray that somebody would respond to that call tonight. And Lord, your calling is always your equipping and enablement to do that. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We bless you. In your name we ask. Amen.